Hello, everyone. Welcome back to New Books in History. I'm your host, Peter Christian Agner. Today, we're speaking with Sophia Lee about her new book, The Workplace Constitution, From the New Deal to the New Right. Sophia, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to do this. I'm glad that you agreed. Uh, Why don't you begin by telling us about yourself? Hello, everyone. Welcome back to New Books in History. I'm your host, Peter Christian Agner. Today, we're speaking with Sophia Lee about her new book, The Workplace Constitution, From the New Deal to the New Right. Sophia, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to do this. I'm glad that you agreed. Uh, Why don't you begin by telling us about yourself and how you came to this project? So I'm currently a professor at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. I've been here for about six years, and I trained as a legal historian. So I have a JD and a PhD in history. And uh, and I came to this book, this is my first book, um, as a graduate student many, many, many years ago now. Uh, and I really uh, came on the, upon the topic doing research for a professor. So I uh, had been assigned a sort of for a summer to spend my time uh, kind of rooting around in the, the ways equal protection uh, and race were thought to have something to do with each other uh, in the mid-20th century, so the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And I was looking at, at judicial opinions and also at legal academic articles um, and, uh, to some extent, popular sources and just trying to understand how people's thinking about equal protection and race uh, and changed over the course of that, uh, that period. And um, one of the things that I was struck by was uh, that there was so much more creative lawyering uh, and thinking about how the Constitution might be used to address racial discrimination and where uh, it might be used to address racial discrimination than I had uh, been aware of. And uh, this ranged everything from, you know, uh, for the legal people out there, Commerce Clause arguments having to do with uh with public transportation, um, arguments about, uh, you know, the Constitution barring discrimination in housing, uh, many, many spheres of life other than uh, other than public schools, which is sort of the, the dominant narrative of the, uh, the NAACP's legal campaign against uh, segregation in public schools during this period. So it was right. really struck by the creativity of the lawyering. And for many of these if you notice uh, the, the kinds of places I was talking about, uh, say, for instance, housing uh, is something that we think of mostly as being, uh, you know, as being something that is happening in the private sector. So private people are selling houses and who are they selling them to, um, as opposed to public schools, which are run by the government. Um, and uh, and so what's striking about that is that people also traditionally lawyers think of the Constitution's rights-bearing provisions, the parts of the Constitution that give us some legal tools against racial discrimination as being limited by what's called the state action doctrine, which is this legal rule that says that the Constitution only requires non-discrimination by the state and its agents, so not private individuals, which means I can discriminate against Peter all I want um, because we are just two private individuals. If I were 
the government, though, I would no longer be able to discriminate against him. That would be unconstitutional. Um, So one of the things civil rights litigators were up against was not only an idea that segregation wasn't discrimination, but also an idea that whatever constitutional rights African-Americans had, they didn't extend to their interactions with private actors, private sector actors like homeowners. And so one of the things that I was really struck by in reading this history was how uh, how creative civil rights litigators were at trying to reach those supposedly private forms of discrimination uh, and uh, and not just targeting the kind of government forms of discrimination like segregated schools. But in, you know, in seeing this really creative lawyering, there was one thing that seemed to be missing, which seemed just sort of puzzling to me, which was the workplace. And I just didn't understand why, if there was so much creative litigating going on and so many efforts to try to bring the Constitution into these private zones, uh, supposedly private zones like the uh, like uh, housing, why you wouldn't see that same kind of creativity going on in terms of trying to reach the workplace and discrimination in the workplace, especially given that workplace discrimination was one of the sort of major concerns uh, that African Americans had uh, in the, the sort of modern civil rights era, leading to things like the March on Washington movement and the efforts to try to get a, a fair employment committee uh, created under the federal by the, uh, by federal law. So, I really came upon this topic by seeing an absence and. Uh, at first, I thought what I was going to be doing was try- telling a story about why there wasn't any effort to win uh, constitutional rights in the workplace on the behalf of uh, African-American workers. And uh, and that was really the little seed that grew over, you know, over the next 10 years into this book. And uh, one of the first sort of big aha moments for me was finding out, figuring out that actually... Uh, civil rights lawyers were uh, trying to win constitutional rights against uh, discrimination in the workplace and had all the hallmarks of creativity I had seen everywhere else. Uh, One of those was that they brought those claims primarily before administrative agencies and not in courts. Uh, And so one reason uh, it seemed like it wasn't there was just that it wasn't, I wasn't going to see it very well if I was looking just in courts. Uh, Another was that what happened as you, you know, as you, as these cases moved up, even the ones that were brought in court, as they moved up the, uh, the chain of the appellate courts, by the time they got to the highest courts, uh, courts had sort of sanitized them of their constitutional claims. So it also took uh, sort of digging more at the trial level to, uh, to, find, uh, to find these claims. Um, but that was really that was really the seed. It was an effort to try to fill it, try to understand an absence, and lo and behold, it ended up un, uh, un revealing this very rich presence. Uh, both it turned out on the part of civil rights advocates uh, and their labor allies, and uh, I later found out on the part of conservatives who were also trying to uh, try to bring the Constitution into the workplace during this period. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot of historians who um, would have begun with that narrative. I mean, this is interesting about your 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 book is that you know 
it's sort of this received wisdom for a lot of folks that there isn't this sort of action uh, at the workplace level that the, the narrative you refer to about NWCP going after segregation in, in education. That's, that's, that's where the focus is. And, and whether because of the cold war, or some other factor, um, civil rights, early civil rights groups aren't, aren't focusing on the workplace. And that's, that's what makes this, this story so fascinating among other things. And, and, you know, the point about, these administrative bodies that you write about, um, you have this uh, line in the beginning where you describe it, you know, administrative bodies as overlooked, but omni an overlooked, but omnipresent constitutional force in the modern American state. And I suppose a lot of Americans wouldn't quite um, think about the FCC or the NLRB in those terms, but um, for scholars, right, this is, this is a really important fact because the administrative state grows tremendously after uh, the new deal. Um, and it is a, a huge part of this story. Um, why don't we, so, you know, um, why don't we begin, uh, uh, with some of the characters that you introduce here? You, uh, you begin the, the introduction talking about a fellow named C.W. Rice, who you write, did not know it, but set the stage for a 50 year struggle that has left Americans today with little or no constitutional protection in the workplace. Um, who was Rice and, and what do you mean by that? So C.W. Rice was, uh, you know, I guess in some ways you'd say who he was would depend on who you asked. He uh, he had worked his way up in the early 20th century to a position of leadership in Houston's African-American community. He ran a, uh, a sort of labor service, which essentially meant he worked as a liaison helping African-Americans find jobs uh, among the local, uh, the local employers. Um, and he uh, was a big proponent of independent black unions. So he thought it was a good idea for black workers to collectivize and, uh, and to, uh, you know, to form unions, but he thought very strongly that they should do that in their own separate unions, not try to integrate into the, uh, you know, mostly all white uh, unions that were associated with the American Federation of Labor. And so what does that mean? So the reason I start with him as a puzzle, uh, sort of a puzzle that uh, that uh, sort of continues throughout the book is because on one account, he was, uh, you know, a uh, sort of a practical, uh, realistic leader uh, of black labor who recognized that if African-Americans were going to be a minority in all white unions, they were going to be discriminated against within the union and, uh, and it wouldn't really be a source of power for them. Uh, and, uh, and so one version of him is he was sort of a somewhat, uh, you might say, a sort of practical black nationalist uh, leader who really uh, was pro-labor and uh, and seeking a path to greater economic power for black workers. Another account, another way to look at him uh, was that he was really just a, uh, a sort of a shill for white employers and, uh, and he was, uh, you know, recruiting African-Americans on their behalf to largely undercut uh, the undercut union, so they might these uh, the workers he plays might be strike breakers or something like that, 
and that his uh, segregated black unions were really just going to be employer-dominated company unions that were used to sort of divide and undermine uh, worker solidarity uh, on, uh, you know, in any particular in any particular workplace. And uh, I would say at any point in time, you could find people in the in Houston's black community who held both of those views. But I would say the prior view that really saw him as a champion of black labor probably predominated more in the 20s and early 30s. And by the late 30s, increasingly uh, to, Af- to African-Americans, both in Houston and nationally, he was starting to look more like an agent of uh, of maintaining the status quo rather than an agent of change. And in many ways, this is also how the workplace constitution has been viewed over time. Uh, these two, two sort of ways of seeing what it would mean to have constitutional rights in the workplace. On the one hand, uh, you know, it could be something that uh, that really facilitated African-American workers joining the labor movement by getting them access to uh, to jobs and getting them access to unions so they could be, as uh, Charles Hamilton Houston, another uh, another of the people I write about said, you know, uh, part of the collective as well as part of the bargain, uh, you know, or the workplace constitution was really a, uh, a sort of individual individualizing rights-based tool that largely benefited conservative forces and hurt labor. And, uh, you know, Throughout the entire history I talk about in the book, you could find people who would give you both those accounts of the workplace constitution. And indeed, I think today, if we talked about the future of the workplace constitution, you would find people who would take both those positions on whether or not a workplace constitution is a good thing, uh, a good thing for workers. And so Bryce, I, I, he really captures that uh, kind of puzzle in his own lifetime. And I think um, illustrates this kind of puzzle about the workplace constitution that I wanted to spool out across the rest of the book and leave yeah. readers with in thinking about today. Yeah, I mean, Rice is facing you know a, cl- a classic dilemma where you know racism has been this poison in American labor history uh, and legal history, and um, you know on the one hand, uh, you know he's uh, uh, you know. In the 20s, you know what he what he's advocating makes sense. There's this brief period in the 1880s and the 1890s where groups unions like the AFL are, are cross racial and they're trying they're trying to organize all all, uh, all races of workers and that and that quickly disappears. And so the idea of all black unions uh, makes sense. But when we have this sea change in the with the New Deal era with the Wagner Act and other laws, um, that unions now have exclusive representation. Um, to, to negotiate for all workers, which is a bad deal for for Black America, because uh, these uh, local unions uh, have have control. The the their their federalists, you know, they're organized federally, and um, uh, they're vehemently racist. Um, so. Uh, you, you begin the, the chapter talk, the first part of the, of the book, talking about Rice uh, going before the House Committee on Labor and uh, talking about uh, challenging uh, the Carmen's election on behalf of the All Black National Railway Federation uh, and this uh, hurdle he faces in uh, challenging the uh, trying to get the state action doctrine. So, 
Uh, so, yes, yeah, so you've touched on some of the, the major transformations that happen in the New Deal that really shift the ground under uh, under people like C.W. Rice. Um, so the passage of the Wagner Act and the Railway Labor Act, which together for the first time ever give workers a legal right to organize and require employers to bargain with a union that can show significant, sufficient support among uh, among its workers really just transforms unions from uh, where they had been, which was a small, you know, organizing a small minority of workplaces to, uh, you know, just massively increasing over the next really up 20 years to the point where by 1955, you know, one out of three uh, non-agricultural workers is, uh, is a member of a union. So, uh, so the 30s are seeing, are just at the very beginning, uh, thanks to these New Deal laws of this massive increase in unionization. And, uh, and along with that goes this question for, uh, for African Americans of how to, how to really uh, position themselves vis-a-vis this massive growth in union power. Given that, historically, while there have been there had been moments where it seemed like there might be uh, sort of opportunities for interracial union organizing, the dominant history uh, had been circa 1930, one in which uh, one in which unions were almost exclusively many many unions in their constitutions were white only, um, and uh, and weren't just sort of formally white only. Actually, used their uh, you know used their power to uh, to exclude African Americans from uh, from whatever type of work they uh, they controlled. African Americans sometimes were used as strike strike breakers. So there had been this long period of uh, of tension and uh, and hostility uh, between uh, many uh, between the labor movement, the organized labor movement, and African Americans, and to the extent African Americans wanted to unionize, they tended to do it in these independent black unions. So uh, so with the New Deal labor laws on the books, they faced a number of choices. One was, uh, you know, one approach that some people like A. Philip Randolph, who was the head of the uh, Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, a mostly African-American union on the railroads, uh, his approach was to say, look, the way labor, the way African-Americans have to when equality in the workplace and in the uh, and from unions is from within, and so he actually affiliated his union with the AFL and sought to win equality from within the labor movement. Uh, another approach was C.W. Rice's, which was to focus on separate unions and to try to maintain African American unions, uh, uh, independent Black unions. Though, as you point out, that becomes incredibly increasingly difficult as uh, as the the labor, the new labor laws say, look, you can only have one union per workplace, and so uh, unless you know, unless you have an all-black workplace, you're also not going to be able to succeed in winning an all-black union. Uh, right. So there's these two sort of organizational uh, uh, strategy choices, and then there's a question of what role the law should have in these efforts, and this is where you know the labor move, labor leaders, A. Philip Randolph versus C. W. Rice have different views on this question. The lawyers also have different views on this question. And so some lawyers think, uh, think, for instance, uh, 
John P. Davis, who I talk about, who uh, who led an organization called the, uh, uh, the National Negro Congress in the, uh, in the 30s. Uh, some think that similar to a Philip Randolph, that uh, that the way to uh, the really the way to win equality is for African Americans to join the more uh, left leaning and uh, and racially progressive unions that begin to crop up in the late 30s, uh, most affiliated with the uh, CIO, uh, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, which sort of splits off from the AFL and uh, and really is trying to have a new a new uh, sort of more progressive approach to labor organizing. Um, so Davis thinks. You know, we shouldn't turn to the state and we shouldn't turn to law. We should really show we should win equality by showing our white brothers, uh, what working class brothers that we stand with them uh, would be his approach. Other lawyers like uh, Charles Hamilton Houston, who I talked about uh, just a little while ago, uh, believed that there was a room, uh, there was a space for law, that uh, that there was a space to use law to crack open Union voice and union uh, uh, union membership uh, for African Americans, and so uh, in the late 30s, uh, one of the things that happens is there's sort of these internal debates in the bar, and um, and uh, but people like Charles Hamilton Houston uh, start to attract black worker uh, clients. Some of them, uh, uh, many of them, members of these formerly all black independent unions who are. Uh, trying to figure out how to survive uh, once a white union has won the election and now ha- is the only union that can really represent them, and uh, and Houston finds his way to the Constitution as uh, as a way to do this, and uh, he manages. He brings a number of cases. He loses uh, in the lower courts. He faces a lot of hurdles, but he finally, in 1944, makes it all the way to the Supreme Court with a. a Couple different cases that he's been bringing, and uh, and gets the court to sort of the court stops just shy of saying the Constitution requires unions to uh, be non-discriminatory on the basis of race in terms of membership and representation. Um, instead, the court says, "Well, there would be a lot of constitutional problems if we if the law let unions uh, be racially discriminatory." So we uh, we are going to uh, say that we understand the labor law, the uh, the relevant labor laws, that Wagner Act, the uh, the Railway Labor Act, to sort of even though they say nothing about it, and even though Congress, when they passed them, was asked to put non discrimination provisions in and refused, we're going to still interpret <laughs> these laws uh, to to require the the unions that represent workers that are now have this exclusive representative status. So they're the only union that can represent the the workers and they're going to represent all the workers in the, uh, in the workplace that's going to require them to wield that power fairly. Uh, And that means that they can't do things like the railroad unions had been doing, which was win exclusive representative status and then basically kick all the African-American workers off the railroads. Uh, so uh, so the Supreme Court says, you can't, once you're representative, you have to re- represent fairly in 1944. The court stops short of saying you have to actually allow African-Americans into membership. You don't, uh, so the court says you don't have to let them be members. You don't have to give them a voice in the union or, you know, a sort of a say in union policy. But when you 
get down to negotiating contracts, you cannot negotiate contracts that are going to basically, you know, get rid of, uh, you know, uh, all the African-American workers uh, in, in a particular job. Uh, so that's a major win. It stops short of the full constitutional goal that, uh, that uh, Houston had set and uh, stops short of granting membership, which was also part of what Houston and his civil rights allies had, uh, had sought. But it was still a pretty major uh, early accomplishment uh, for African-Americans trying to find a way to make sure they were uh, part of this new uh, new modern regime in which uh, workplaces, large workplaces, were going to be unionized, and uh, and uh, a lot of the new industries were, you know, and therefore the you know the most dynamic area for jobs were going to be controlled by uh, controlled by unions. Right, right. So I mean, Houston marks this shift. You know, the, the courts are understand the, these uh, railroad cases, the steel and tungsten that Houston brings forward as uh, you know, narrowly circumscribed statutory or uh, fiduciary duties, not not the broad, you know, what, what you call the, the liberal workplace constitution, right? That Houston is sort of like cleverly repurposed, you know, from anti-New Deal arguments uh, in defense of this new uh, state. Um, but it, it marks a shift from folks like Rice who had, you know, embraced the liberty of contract doctrine, right, that had been associated with business and used by the Supreme Court to strike down progressive legislation, um, which is where we get this this term, the, the right to work. Um, uh, so Houston and these folks are arguing that there's a, a right to work or, or a sort of duty of fair representation that unions have as, as state actors, right? So he's trying to um, uh, win a place for uh, blacks in, in this new a gigantic world of union labor. Important pivotal moment, I think, for civil rights advocates like Houston, who are actually they're not, you know, they're not opposed to labor. They think that labor is actually, you know, going to be a very important ally for the uh, for African Americans seeking civil rights. Uh, they're really uh, they they see the power of. Uh, of the sort of mass action model of unions. Um, so they're, you know, unlike someone like Rice, who's very skeptical of the new unions, the uh, the CIO unions, very skeptical of the New Deal. These guys are, you know, they're pro, they're pro New Deal. They are, uh, you know, think that uh, while it's not perfect, there's a lot of good, you know, a lot of good in, uh, in the sort of growth of these various, uh, New Deal programs and and a lot of potential uh, a lot of potential for a very powerful alliance in uh, in the the new expanding labor movement and so the trick for for someone like Houston is to find a way to use the Constitution to not seem like it's part of this long history of employers turning to the Constitution to crush unions or to get rid of uh, uh, sort of labor-friendly laws, uh, but actually to sort of try to find a way to use the Constitution in a way that is about empowering and uh, and maybe perfecting the New Deal labor regime rather than trying to thwart it. And, uh, and that is a very sort of deft move that he makes both doctrinally and, uh, and politically and uh, and convincing ultimately even uh, even the CIO and its unions 
that uh, that the Constitution uh, and uh, anti-discrimination claims under the Constitution can really be, uh, you know, can really help uh, help this sort of new modern uh, New Deal labor regime, uh, you know, in its ultimate goals to uh, to to make the United States more labor friendly. Uh, and more labor-friendly economy and more labor-friendly uh, political uh, political structure. Right. I mean, and you know, and labor had labor had was leery of you know, what you call a judicially enforced constitution as well, because the courts had this long history of, of striking down all these um, pieces of legislation in, in their favor. Right. So by the end of the 1930s, they're they're moving away from this old vision of industrial democracy um, that involves the state to collective bargaining, right, to private contracts as as where all progress will be, right? Industrial pluralism is the term that they're using. Yeah. And uh, and so they, you know, the, it really comes to uh, it comes to the point where in the uh, in the 40s. I mean, so it's interesting, you know, I, I think it's very important. A, a lot of the book is about uh, sort of premised on remembering that we tend to talk about these blocks, the civil rights movement, the labor movement, conservatives, as if they are homogenous and unified. And, um, you know, the book really tries to point out and, uh, and mind that these were internally contentious coalitions that had very different views of things. And one thing right. that is, uh, important to note was that the this idea that there might be constitutional rights that required unions to be non-discriminatory helped sort of became a useful tool in uh, in struggles within the labor movement so between if you were a CIO union that was more racially progressive that was interracial and that was trying to organize say in the south uh, and you faced a traditional AFL union uh, that had a long history of organizing either only white workers or to the extent they organized black workers, they would be segregated into a separate union, right? Uh, for, for the CIO as an interracial union, the idea that, that uh, unions had to not, uh, couldn't discriminate actually became a useful tool for them in their battles against these traditional AFL unions because they could now say, well, even, and this happens in, uh, in chapter two, the, one of the most racially progressive CIO unions loses an election at a tobacco, uh, a tobacco plant in, uh, in the South, and they lose it to this uh, traditionally all-white AFL union that, wanted, that uh, had said, well, if the African-American, uh, if they win the election, they would segregate the African-American workers at the plant into a separate union. The CIO loses that election and then turns around and says, well, but the Constitution won't let you, uh, you, the federal government, recognize this AFL union as the representative for these workers because it discriminates. And so uh, uh, so the CIO really, in some ways, embraces the workplace Constitution uh, along with allies like uh, Charles Hamilton Houston and, uh, and folks in the civil rights movement because it can help the CIO unions in their own battles with more uh, racially exclusive AFL unions. And so it ends up uh, sort of having these very complicated, uh, complicated politics within the labor movement as well. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, you know, at the same time that this is going on, we have, uh, you know, the, the anti-New Deal forces, the anti-labor forces um, uh, are, they have not disappeared. They are organizing as well, right? Which gets us to Cecil B. DeMille. Yeah, Cecil B. DeMille is a really, you know, I, somebody, one person said, uh, you know, it's too bad you can't have a Cecil B. DeMille for every chapter. Because he's, yes. You know, he's a very colorful guy. And, yeah. You know, he also was a very wealthy guy and a guy with a lot of power. So some of the, you know, some of his ability to sort of be such a big character came from some of those privileges. Uh, But, you know, Cecil B. DeMille is this really, uh, you know, it's an interesting and savvy operator. Uh, You know, he's a real, he's a, you know, started, basically grew up with the movie industry, you know, started out in silent films and by you know the 1940s is one of the most prominent directors and producers in uh, in Hollywood, uh, who has a national reputation. He has a very beloved national radio program. He does um, so. He's just an enormous personality, a very public persona at a time when the nation is really you know media is changing and the nation's really just starting to have these kinds of big public persona. So he's in some ways, sweet, generous, and, uh, and also just, you know, got an incredible, uh, sort of incredibly, um, effective pulpit for, uh, for his, uh, his views. And it turns out that he's, um, he is a, uh, sort of a Republican activist associated with its, the party's more conservative wing in the, um, in the thirties and forties. He's a, very uh, ardent anti-communist before anti-communism uh, is really uh, sort of the, a, a national uh, national phenomenon, uh, and uh, and he's very anti-union or at least anti-closed shop unions, which uh, he sort of wavers on that point a little bit. Um, and he's a member of a union himself because. The, the, in order to be uh, to host his radio show, he has to be a member of the American Federation of Radio Artists because they have what's called a closed shop agreement with the studios, which says that the studios can only hire people who are members of their union uh, to uh, to do uh, to be radio artists. Uh, so that means the only way Demille can have his radio show is if he's a member of. Afra, the radio artists union, um, and uh, and the radio artists uh, are uh, you know so he's he's a member of this union because he has to be um, that they control access to the show and they uh, get involved in California in the early forties. Uh, there start to be the very first um, state right to work law campaigns. Now these should be very familiar to readers uh, or listeners today because. We've been in a moment where these laws have been very much in the headlines. So these are laws like what was recently passed in Wisconsin. They're laws that uh, a state can adopt that says it's going to be illegal in that state for anyone to have to join or support a union in order to keep a job. So these laws essentially would free someone like DeMille from having to be a member of his union in order to have his radio show. Um, and California is one of the first states that sees one of these campaigns in uh, in the early 1940s. And DeMille is a big supporter of this right to work law. And DeMille's 
union is a big opponent of this right to work law. And the union tells DeMille, look, Mr. DeMille, you, like every other member, are going to have to pay $1 to help fund our campaign against this right to work law. And DeMille is outraged. He thinks this is an enormous, uh, uh, an enormous violation of his constitutional rights that he should not have to support any, uh, uh, basically support a political campaign he opposes. Uh, and so he decides to refuse to pay his dollar bill. And, uh, and when the union does what is quite predictable um, in this situation, when the union says, okay, you're not going to pay the dollar bill, then we're not going to let you continue your radio show, um, he takes them to court and, uh, and insists that this is a violation of his constitutional rights. And so, uh, so the third chapter of the book tells the story of DeMille's lawsuit, which because of the state action doctrine, which I had, uh, had talked about earlier, uh, you know, he's trying to say the union violated his constitutional rights. You know, the courts, it's easy for courts to say, well, no, the union can't violate your constitutional rights. The union is a private actor, not a state actor. Um, but even beyond that, even beyond the state action doctrine, just the, the very premise that by having to pay money to a union to support the union's political campaign, somehow DeMille himself is being forced to support that political campaign, just doesn't compute to courts in the 1940s. They just don't think there's anything even on the merits to that kind of a First Amendment claim, that kind of a forced speech claim. They say, you know, essentially, Mr. DeMille, you're free to go out and campaign however you want as a private individual. And once you've given that money to the union, it's really the union's money that's paying for the campaign you oppose, not your money. And so this just doesn't make any sense to us. Um, so he really loses in the courts with this uh, with this lawsuit in the 1940s. Um, but he's not terribly surprised. And because he is such a savvy guy, he sort of decides that the way to win isn't by bringing more lawsuits, but by really changing how people think about the Constitution and think about that claim he was trying to make, that somehow he was being forced to support and uh, say something that he didn't want to say uh, when his union uh, charged him that uh, charged him that fee, and so he uh, he, along with a number of the big industrialists and conservative activists, forms a foundation, the DeMille Foundation for Political Freedom, and uh, and they make a big cause celebre out of his uh, his fight with his union. Uh, one of the one of the backers of the foundation buys him an hour on national radio to uh, tell his story to the nation. And he gives speeches around the country and he uses this platform basically to make his case about the constitutional uh, violation of, uh, you know, the way these, uh, the way having to join or support a union violates a worker's constitutional rights. He makes that case to the court of public opinion uh, and, uh, and is quite successful in that venue. So successful that really by the 1950s, that claim that he uh, that he had made, that argument he had made in the 1940s, that just didn't compute in the courts, starts to compute in the courts, even in the Supreme Court of the United States. And courts begin to think about the idea of workers having to join or support a union uh, in order to keep their job 
as something uh, as something that is constitutionally problematic, at least insofar as that support and that uh, is that financial support of the union is going to go to political speech on behalf of the union. Right. So, I mean, we have we have two movements and, you know, which is this this is the framework of the book, right? You trace these two movements from the new deal to the, to the uh, end of the century um, that are both arguing for different conceptions of a workplace constitution, right. For, for different purposes um, and with different results. Um, So what, so how does this play out in the post-war era? So, um, so yeah, the way I talk about it in the book is that you have on the one hand, a civil rights movement along with its labor allies that are, that's um, really uh, fighting for what I call a liberal workplace constitution. Um, their idea is that the constitution uh, bars unions and employers from discriminating on the basis of race, and so it can be a tool to open the workplace and open unions to uh, to black workers who want to access decent jobs, but also just want an opportunity to be part of uh, of the union collective, to be part of workers' voice in, uh, and, uh, in the union and, uh, and with employers. And then at the same time, you have what I call a conservative workplace constitution, a movement for conservative workplace constitution. And these, these, are, uh, these, these folks are really, uh, you know, unlike, you know, unlike the folks who, uh, who are pushing for a liberal workplace constitution who favor the New Deal, like the New Deal labor regime, they just want to make sure African Americans have their place at the table. Uh, conservative, the folks who support a conservative workplace constitution come out of, uh, you know, come growing out of a, a sort of those who are deeply opposed to the New Deal state, who, uh, and particularly its labor regime, want to see these laws undone and see the workplace constitution as a tool to that end. Uh, and uh, by by being able to win uh, uh, win the right to what they call the right to work, the right to work without having to join or uh, or support a union, and their ultimate goal with this is really to uh, to get rid of uh, get rid of the the kinds of agreements that unions had uh, often entered into that would require uh, you know that would require all workers to join or support the union um, uh, that was going to represent them. And, you know, DeMille was quite explicit. This was basically about, uh, you know, about defunding the labor movement. Um, and so it wouldn't have uh, be able to exercise the kind of political power that it was exercising. Right. And so, uh, so you have these uh, two versions of the two movements pursuing these two different versions of the constitution, um, and you know pursuing a workplace constitution to two very different ends. They're sort of at a, at a sort of in the legal DNA, though. These, even though they are sort of politically opposed, and they want to use the workplace constitution to these very different ends, at the level of sort of constitutional DNA, they're connected because both <coughs> need to first convince courts that the constitution should apply in the workplace at all um, right. in the, you know, in the traditionally private sector workplace. And that means they have to convince uh, courts that whatever that, that doctrine, the state action doctrine that I was talking about before, uh, you know, reaches the private sector workplace. And so that first, there's sort of the first hurdle they face is one they share. 
Uh, and this created both opportunities and complications uh, for uh, for the uh, these movements as they went forward. It created opportunities in that uh, that they could uh, they could sort of because the the very fact if they share a hurdle, if one of them gets over it, it's going to help the other one essentially. Uh, so let's start right. with the liabilities for the civil rights activists. This created complications because they were very closely allied with labor and they didn't want their claims to for a liberal workplace constitution to inadvertently hurt the very unions they were trying to get access to. And it would if they made it over the state action hurdle and then the right to work movement was just able to leap along behind them because of that, uh, because of their success. Uh, so this, this sort of, this, uh, sort of unity in the DNA created problems for uh, for civil rights activists, but it also created opportunities. It created political leverage. Uh, so what started happening in the 1950s as the right to work movement took off and was having more success, uh, both politically and in the courts, uh, is that African American, some African Americans uh, would sort of use the the threat of you know of possibly joining forces with the, with the right to work folks as a way to try to put a little fire more fire under the uh, under the seats of labor leaders to do more to address uh, address racial discrimination in the labor movement uh, this similarity in the DNA also created opportunities for the right to work movement uh, which, Started out really, um, you know, a lot of the, the sort of early laws that were adopted were adopted in the South. A lot of the big actors early on in the right to work movement came out of the South and were closely associated with white supremacism. And right. uh, so by the 1950s, the right to work movement really had a reputation right up there with the John Birch Society of being, you know, being sort of one step away from the Ku Klux Klan. And, uh, and what they began to discover in the 1950s was they could capitalize, they could sort of make union discrimination, unions racial discrimination, a right-to-work argument, right? So they started making arguments like, you know, to, uh, you know, black voters, African-American workers should be for the right to work because we are going to liberate you from these racially discriminatory unions. And, uh, and in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, the right-to-work movement, more systematically and with increasing sophistication, made arguments that really aligned the right-to-work with not white supremacism, but with uh, the civil rights movement itself and African-Americans' civil rights. Uh, right. and, uh, and so this the, sort of created these political opportunities for the right-to-work movement to really um, to try to temper that ultra right sort of white supremacist reputation that the movement had gained in the uh, in the forties and fifties. Yeah, and they're aided. I mean, at the same time, they're aided by uh, the turn in, in labor's image, right? Because with the Senate hearings on corruption, um, uh, unions, which are you know a much huger part of of, uh, of American life that I think most Americans would find fathomable, um, today, uh, uh, um, unions, uh, 
there's all these investigations into corruption, mostly mostly with the old sort of AFL unions and, and just a few of them like the Teamsters, but um, labor takes a hit too. And so there's this transformation uh, on both sides, right? Yeah. I mean, so the, you know, the labor movement really reached its peak of uh, sort of density and strength in the, uh, in the mid fifties. And, uh, and really, you know, is, I would say, uh, you know, the, the claims of, you know, is, is sort of in retrospect, I think starts being more on the defensive in the fifties and sixties than uh, maybe even people fully recognized at the, uh, at the time. Um, and, you know, the, the claims of union racketeering and corruption that had been sort of a staple of the anti-New Deal, anti-union, right-to-work um, activists dating back really to the late 1930s. But just as uh, just as people like Cecil B. DeMille and the right-to-work movement had really uh, sort of started to get courts to um, to see the constitutional right-to-work constitutional claims from uh, from his perspective, similarly. Uh, that that movement had really uh, quite effectively started to shift the public perception of unions and really got traction with these uh, these claims of you know of racketeering in the labor movement, which uh, and and corruption um, and you know it the in fact it was these were pretty the you know these hearings when all was said and done did unveil some really bad practices, but they were in particular, you know, tend to be in very particular unions like the Teamsters, which the AFL then, uh, you know, kicked out. Uh, but, uh, but really the, the labor movement is going through, uh, you know, as, as really in some ways on the defensive in terms of its image uh, by the late 1950s and into the, and into the 1960s, which, you know, in some ways, you know, made, uh, made, that those sort of tactical moves that the civil rights movement had available to it, in some ways more uh, more effective because labor was on the defensive, and so it was more sensitive to claims that it you know that it you know it wasn't uh, it, it was uh, not doing enough on discrimination, um, but also made I think civil rights advocates more leery of. Uh, of workplace constitutional claims because they recognized in some ways uh, more acutely the threat that they could pose to, uh, to labor and, uh, and really at the bottom, you know, at bottom we're trying to win access to you to labor rather than, uh, rather than, you know, doing anything gravely to hurt it. Um, so this is, this was sort of the, how the stage was set when we get to the 1960s and, uh, and the 1960s were a period when, uh, on the one hand, uh, the NAACP starts really uh, taking labor to task more explicitly for and aggressively for the persistent discrimination in uh, in a number of its unions. Uh, it's also when the labor movement, I think in some ways, uh, the national leaders see and they they're they're sort of trying to herd cats <laughs> when you're talking to the level of the national labor leaders uh in terms yeah. of what's going on at the local level where a lot of this discrimination is occurring in unions um i think they at that point come to see you know it, it would really um 
you know, they, they've been supporting anti-discrimination, you know, a, a sort of a federal law to bar racial discrimination in workplaces since the late 1940s. They really go gangbusters in the 60s. There's a, this opening, I think, this with a civil rights movement really putting pressure from the grassroots. There's uh, an opening in Congress for something that everyone had thought was totally inconceivable, really even in 1960 when President Kennedy was elected. Um, but yeah. there is this opening in the, you know, in 1963, 1964. And, uh, and labor is a big part of what got uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, you know, through uh, the, the congressional sausage making factory and, uh, and really out the door and, in, and into uh, into law. And, uh, and so it, in some ways, the passage of the Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which for the first time declares for most workplace, larger workplaces in the country, that discrimination on, on the basis of race, sex, national origin, uh, religion is going to be illegal. Uh, in some ways, you know, I think the most people would expect that this would put an end to the liberal workplace constitution, right? Now you've got a statute, you can bring your claims under that statute, and uh, you don't have to mess with this, you know, it's a politically volatile issue of the workplace constitution to uh, address these issues of uh, racial discrimination in workplaces and unions. And one of the things that uh, was surprising to me in the history is how much that is, doesn't end up being the case. It doesn't actually lead to the end of the workplace constitution. But it does mean that the workplace constitution, the liberal workplace constitution, really migrates into administrative agencies. And so you get, um, during this time, a uh, really big push in the NL, uh, before the National Labor Relations Board to, uh, to have more robust anti-discrimination policies in the way uh, that it applies to employers and to unions. Uh, you get a huge push before the Federal Communications Commission uh, for it to require um, better anti-discrimination, workplace anti-discrimination measures from the broadcasters and telephone companies that it's, uh, that it's regulating. You really get a push in the uh, late 60s and early 70s by civil rights advocates in front of pretty much every major regulatory agency that they adopt rules that will uh, that will and regulations that will require uh, equal employment among the entities that they regulate. So even something like the Securities Exchange Commission sees you know efforts <laughs> like this. So it's really kind of surprising, and it's interesting to think yeah. why. And part of the reason is that you know today Title VII really dominates the field of anti discrimination law, but it's hard to remember that when it was passed. As much as it was a monumental achievement, there were a lot of ways in which it didn't really do everything that civil rights advocates had hoped. And there were a lot of concerns about limits in the law. Um, right. It was the agency tasked with implementing it was small, underfunded, very weak. Right. And yeah. uh, and so uh, there was uh, and and at, in the early years, you know, nobody knew that the courts would ultimately enforce it so robustly. So really for a good 10 years after Title VII was passed, I think civil rights advocates were not putting all their eggs in that basket yet. They were really uh, uh, wanting to try to uh, continue to pursue many methods to create pressure on uh, on the federal government to uh, to 
create anti-discrimination law. And it turned out that the liberal workplace constitution was a very effective uh, way to do that in, uh, you know, in, the, in front of these administrative agencies. Yeah, I really enjoyed that chapter on the FCC uh, and, and, the, and the gains that were made by the civil rights movement in the seventies in that in that area. Um, it reminded me, you know, um, how important that was to the way that Americans uh, saw the civil rights movement generally as they're going through um, and having it brought to them by a, a, an all white media, basically. Um, but you know, the, the the this gets us back to how this can be sometimes confusing because the you know you you write that you know there's no indication that Republicans were consciously using the the Constitution as a Trojan horse for the right to work agenda, but um, you know the strongest members on 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 the NLRB are Republicans. Um, you know there are these there are these free market advocates out there who are still attacking the workplace Constitution, but then there are these conservatives who. Um, who are pushing for it as well, right? Yeah. So, yeah, so it, it has a very, the, the history of the workplace constitution, the, you know, the liberal version of it, the, the, the version that is, uh, you know, trying to uh, ensure African-American access to unions and to employers. Um, and really by the 60s and 70s, we're also talking about women. They become part of who's going to benefit from this uh, workplace constitution. Uh, you know, the internal dynamics on these agencies end up being very, uh, you know, very politically confounding. Um, so that on the NLRB, for instance, it tends to be the Democratic members who are opposed to uh, the agency adopting more robust anti-discrimination laws and essentially ultimately say, like, maybe we should just leave this to uh, to Title VII of the Civil Rights Act and the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission charged with implementing it and not get into this stuff ourselves. And the strongest proponents of strengthening these laws are Republicans. Now, on the NLRB, you know, we have to remember there is a tradition of liberal Republicanism that's still alive in this era. And um, at the NLRB, you know, one of the the, the sort of the strongest voice uh, for these policies is a man called Howard Jenkins Jr., who uh, is a son of union members. From he's from Denver, Colorado. His dad was in the Postal Workers Union. He uh, he's African American. He ends up teaching law at Howard Law School and being involved in a lot of the you know, sort of the war rooms that the NAACP would have in the 1950s with their big civil rights cases before they'd go to the Supreme Court. They, you know, sort of bring in all the great legal minds to uh, moot the arguments and things like that. So he's, uh, you know, very much a part of the civil rights movement. He comes from a a labor-friendly tradition, but he's also a Republican from, you know, again, from an era in which most African-Americans were Republicans because, Democrats were associated with Southern Democrats and were seen as, yeah. you know, the party of white supremacy. Um, and so someone like Jenkins, I, you know, I think, you know, he has certainly has political supporters who are sort of free enterprise, right to work folks. But I think he's really coming at this issue from a deep belief in uh, in civil rights and out of that Republican tradition that sort of saw itself as the party of Lincoln. Uh, and I think the other, you know, really his closest ally, Republican ally on the uh, on the board 
is, you know, is similar. He's a, he was sort of a moderate management side lawyer. Um, he's not one of these far right, really anti-union uh, uh, activists, but he is also a Republican. Um, so, uh, so yes, there's, I, I think that the, the supporter, the number of the Republican supporters on uh, these various in these various agencies, uh, I think, come out either from the sort of civil rights, you know, an older African American civil rights tradition of republicanism, or sort of the more moderate and liberal wings of the Republican Party. But yeah. uh, but then you do have people like the uh, you know at the FCC uh, under Nixon, the the chair of the FCC. Is really he's a you know a Barry Goldwater protege. Right, he comes right. out of the you know the sort of the Sun Belt and you know hard right conservative free enterprise you know kind of right to work uh, advocate community. Um, and with him, I think there you start to see this tinge of uh, of right to work activists who see anti discrimination as being an anti union tool. So. Uh, in the opinions he writes for, uh, and, or the um, uh, regulations he writes for the uh, FCC, he specifically notes the history of union discrimination and really sort of attribute specifically attributes discrimination to unions rather than to employers, and sort of uses these equal opportunity regulations, equal employment opportunity regulations, as a way to sort of make anti-union arguments at the same time. So I don't think all the Republicans who favor these were, you know, really just chills for the right to work movement, but certainly some of them were and saw this as a, a as a uh, sort of a nice political opportunity. Right. And you, and you end the book by talking about how um, the right divides over this question. Yes. So, uh, so the right to work movement, as I said, you know, DeMille really um, starts to get you know, his, his movement has really changed how courts think about this question. And the right to work movement racks up a number of, uh, of court victories over the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So uh, first, they get uh, the Supreme Court to, uh, in, in many ways, like civil rights advocates first win before the Supreme Court, uh, to sort of say, well, it would raise a lot of constitutional problems if the labor laws let unions take, you know, require uh, require the workers they represent to support their political speech. So we're just going to interpret these la- the, these la- the Railway Labor Act, uh, you know, not to do that. So, the, so we're going to interpret the Railway Labor Act to say, if, uh, if workers want to withhold their dues from unions' political speech, they have a right to do that. Uh, so that's their first win. In the 1970s, the Supreme Court is, uh, it, they bring a case that involves public sector workers. So this is a, from teacher, a group of teachers, really, uh, actually 5% of the teachers in Detroit sign on to this case. Uh, but it involves a public sector union. Um, so there's not the state action problem. And so there the court reaches the constitutional question heads on, head on and says, you know, under the Constitution, if, you know, any, any person represented by a union has a right to opt out of the union's political speech if they want to. Um, and so that's a huge win for the right to work movement. And then in the 1980s, you know, if you think about it, right, the, the wins in the 1960s are under, were under, you know, Kennedy was president and the big win in the 1960s. Um, 
you know, when they win in the 19, uh, in the 1970s, it's, uh, you know, it's the, um, it's under the tail end of the Ford administration, I think. Um, but Carter's, you know, Carter's coming in and, uh, and so, uh, in terms of the sort of overall politics, uh, you know, it's not like this is the most favorable time for, uh, for a conservative movement. By the time the 1980s comes, Ronald Reagan has, you know, won the White House. And, you know, there's sort of a sense that this is a sort of a moment of, uh, of political opening and power for the conservative wing of the Republican Party and the right to work movement expected to sort of ride on the coattails of this, uh, of this, uh, of this movement that they saw themselves as helping to, uh, this political power they saw themselves as helping to achieve. Um, and so they bring, what is really uh, sort of their biggest and most important case, which is a case, are you know, to try to challenge the uh, challenge the union security agreements. These uh, this uh, these agreements that say work- workers have to join or support a union to keep their job. In uh, the vast majority of workplaces that are organized under the National Labor Relations Act, the Wagner Act, the the uh, you know, the New Deal labor law that was passed in 1935. So they've gotten it under the Railway Labor Act, but that just deals with the railroads and airlines. They've gotten it for public sector workers, but that only works for people working for the government. So this is really going to be their opportunity to uh, to make the national, make the right to work really a national, uh, a national rule. And, uh, and they uh, bring a lawsuit on behalf of uh, Harry Beck, a uh, Communications, a telephone worker from uh, from Maryland, and um, and a, a small group of other uh, of his coworkers, and they get tremendous success in the lower courts. They win in the district court, which finds you know again getting back to the state action question, reaches the constitutional point head on and says the union violates these workers' First Amendment rights if it requires them to contribute to uh, to the union's political speech. Um, so they win that in the district court in 1981. Uh, they go up to the Court of Appeals. The Court of Appeals, they win again, uh, including uh, a, a Court of Appeals opinion endorsing that, they, that this is really a constitutional violation. It's not just uh, something wrong under the, under the statute. And, uh, and they go from there to the Supreme Court, and it's sort of Reagan is now in his second term. He's, uh, you know, uh, really uh, not only set out a Republican, conservative Republican political agenda, but also a conservative Republican constitutional agenda. Uh, he's his attorney general, Ed Meese, is sparking huge controversies by giving speeches uh, in support of originalism, this uh, sort of conservative, a new conservative at that time idea about how the Constitution should be interpreted. Uh, he's sort of laying out, Mies is laying out an agenda for uh, for the federal government lawyers on, you know, all the positions they should be taking on the Constitution. So uh, in the face of it, this seems like a very auspicious time. And Reagan has also appointed a number of, uh, of new Supreme Court justices uh, to the court. So there, you know, there's sort of a sense that this is this great moment of opportunity. And yet when uh, when the right to work folks uh, take Beck's case to the Supreme Court, the Solicitor General, who's sort of the lawyer for the uh, for the government, um, comes out against them. Says, 
you know, says that first of all, there's no state action here, so they have no constitutional claim. And second of all, these are, you know, free, these are private actors. This is a private union and a private employer, and they should be free to make whatever kinds of agreements they want, including ones that require workers to support the political speech of, of unions. This is, you know, the good conservative position is one that respects their, their, these private actors' freedom of contract. And, uh, and so he actually files a brief with the Supreme Court uh, rejecting the right to work uh, move right to work legal defense foundations arguments top to bottom and mm. uh, and this sparked an enormous internal debate within the White House and the Department of Justice over what the government's position should be on these. They get a lot of flack from uh, from supporters. The headlines and the newspapers read things like you know can you believe basically that the Reagan administration is union's best friend? I'm paraphrasing right. here, but you know <laughs> these are shocking. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, shocking headlines, and uh, and then the the Supreme Court gets its hands on it. And interestingly, the three dissenter, the Supreme Court ultimately finds very uh, in an opinion written by the same justice who wrote the opinion back in 1961 on behalf of the railroad railroad workers, um, just as he had found that the Railway Labor Act actually just on its own required workers to have this right to opt out of political speech. He finds, this is Justice Brennan, he uh, interprets the National Labor Relations Act also to uh, to in just implicitly uh, provide this right to workers that they opt out of uh, political speech. And so he's able to avoid the constitutional questions, um, but basically gives now the right to work movement. They've had their win for railroad workers. They've had their win for public sector workers. And now they've established that same legal principle for the vast majority of workers who are governed by the National Labor Relations Act. So an enormous win for the right to work movement. Interestingly, the three justices that dissented were all Republican appointees, two of them Reagan appointees, and they basically agreed with the Solicitor General. Uh, And so, uh, so I sort of end the book with this moment where you see that just as the liberal workplace uh, constitution became this very kind of polarizing and splitting issue uh, in the New Deal coalition, similarly, the conservative workplace constitution ends up being this very, uh, uh, very uh, sort of divisive and politically polarizing uh, uh, element in the uh, in the new right, um, and particularly a new right that again we tend to think of as sort of hegemonic in a way that overlooks these kind of internal fissures. Yeah. So, so I mean, so where are we now? You you know in the epilogue that state action uh, doctrine has sort of fallen away. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's so interesting. So I'd known this from I teach employment law at the law school, and um, and I always teach these studies that uh, that several legal scholars have done that show that uh, that workers vastly misperceive their the extent of legal protections in the workplace. Uh, so you know. Most workers don't realize that they can, uh, you know, unless they're covered by a union contract <laughs> or they work for the government and are a member of the civil service, uh, they can be, be fired for any reason or no reason at all. Um, it's called right. the at-will doctrine, and that's the general default rule. If you have a job and you don't have a contract that specifically <laughs> says otherwise, that's your, you know, that's your state. You can be fired for any reason or no reason at all. So I knew that generally workers really 
overestimate their degree of protection. Most of them think that that's not the case, that their employer has to have a good reason to, uh, to fire them. Um, but I, I was curious what people thought particularly about whether they had constitutional rights in the workplace. And so I actually worked with a um, psychology PhD student, and we created a survey and, um, and sort of um, surveyed people about their perception of their constitutional rights at work. And it turns out, quite similar to the findings about legal protections generally, most people thought that they had constitutional rights at work. And to the extent that they did think they had a constitutional right at work, they didn't think it mattered whether who they worked for was Bank of America or the city of Philadelphia. So they had no sense of the state action doctrine and how crucial it is in terms of uh, limiting constitutional rights. Uh, So start with the fact that most people today, I think, think they have a lot of constitutional rights in the workplace that they don't have. So. Where are we today? I really, I wanted the book both to act as a corrective to that, to help people understand that they don't have constitutional rights at work, but also to help them understand why, um, you know, where that has come from. And uh, because I think you can't really understand whether you think that's a good or a bad thing, that you don't have those constitutional rights at work unless you understand this history. Right. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so where are we today? Today, workers, unless you work for the, you know, you work for a public employer, uh, you don't have constitutional rights at work. And is that a good thing or a bad thing? I'm not sure it's a bad thing. Um, I think it, it might be a, uh, a sort of a, I think the history might suggest that there are a lot of constitutional values that uh, and sort of kinds of protections workers might want in the workplace, but you might want to get them via a statute like the Civil Rights Act rather than via the Constitution itself. Um, but but I think that there are good reasons to think that speech rights, privacy rights, due process rights are things that workers would want today, whether they want to win those under the Constitution or through their legislatures or through uh, through unions. I think that's uh, that's a a separate question. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's, um, I mean, it, it just, I just find this all fascinating. Um, uh, I'm so glad you wrote this book. Um, I hope everyone reads it. Um, uh, thanks for, uh, joining us. There's a traditional question here that we're, we're asked to, uh, give our, uh, authors and that's what are you working on something right now? And what's, what is that? Yeah. Well, so, you know, uh, I will say, and I've talked to a number of other people about this, um, uh, you know, this was my first book. So now, you know, so this is done. I'm turning to the next one. And it's a really interesting process to, when you start a book as a graduate student, to sort of figure out how you start a second book as a no longer a graduate student. Um, So I'm at the very beginning stages of the next project. And I can't tell you too, in too much detail what it's going to be because I don't know yet, but the general... Uh, the general uh, scope of it is uh, is looking at the history of privacy and the Constitution and uh, and how we came to value privacy as a as a as a sort of an aspect of constitutional rights. Okay, sounds good. Um, Sophia, thank you so much for joining us today. Great, thank you so much. All right, talk to you. Okay, bye.